Well, as your bulletin says, and I've just said that, next RBT study is on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In case anybody's here visiting and you don't know, what does RBT stand for? It's read the Bible together. So once a month we look at a Bible and uh, we give an overview on a Sunday, and then over the next month uh, we get an opportunity to read it and then come together in small groups and discuss how the letters affected us. And so, as I said, the letter this morning, uh, the, the RBT study this morning is the first letter to the Thessalonians. And we can read the, the background to this letter in Acts 17. So you've got time when you go home, read Acts 17 to get a background to this letter. The background is actually that Paul, on his second, second missionary journey with Silas, spent about a month in Thessalonica. And this city, they gathered the Jews and he gathered Greeks and they became a church. But because of the preaching about Jesus, there were those in the city who came against the teaching. And because Paul was teaching about Jesus being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, they were concerned that there was, they were preaching about another king besides Caesar. And this was not done. You didn't preach a didn't teach another king besides Caesar. And so one day a group of, of uh, a mob really came to, to Jason's house where they had been staying and living in to come and attack them and to deal with them. But fortunately they weren't in the house at that time. And although Jason was taken away and he was in, um, questioned, that night... Paul and Silas were taken out of the city by, by the Christians for fear of them being attacked and killed. And so they left the city. The accusation that, that Paul was preaching about another king could not be tolerated within the city. And Paul's premature leaving of, of, of Thess Thessalonica meant that he hadn't finished teaching the basics of Christianity. He, he'd, he'd done a lot, but he hadn't finished teaching them. And so they were left, although they were saved, although they were followers now of Jesus, they were left with some doctrinal questions. And as a result of this, as being a young church, they had their own share of problems. But there was also accusations that were being made in the city about Paul, that he was a money grabber, that he was just teaching and getting followers of Jesus just to line his own pockets. And this went on for a while. And then finally, when Paul thought that it was safe in the city for somebody to go to the city to help them and encourage them, he sent Timothy to check on how these young Christians, this young church was doing. So Timothy was sent to Thessalonica to access the well-being of this young church. Later on, Timothy caught up with Paul in Corinth and he gave this report and he gave the news that the Thessalonian church was doing well. In fact, not only that it was doing well, that despite the persecution, the church was really flourishing. And Timothy's report reflected that the Thessalonians were a congregation, three things that were really marked out, a congregation who genuinely loved one another. 
Even with just a month, Paul was only there a month. Even though he was only there a month, this group of Christians, they had, they had seen enough and heard enough and were changed enough by the power of the Holy Spirit that they had a real love for one another. They had a passion, a real passion to follow the example of Christ and of what they saw in his apostles. And they lived right through the letters we're going to see. There's this, this constant um, reminder they were living each day in the promised return of Jesus Christ. So with, he with hearing this good news of their faith, their love for one another, he writes this letter to them. And if you read this letter, to so go through this month, it, it, it's typical. It's a typical letter of Paul, which is an overwhelming sense that comes through of his love for this church. His love, his care for the church. And Paul, in typical fashion of his letters and his writings, he, to all the churches, he reminds them, first of all, of who they are in Christ. That's where he starts. He, he encourages them in the observations that Timothy has brought back to him. He reminds them of their salvation. And he does all of this before giving some instructions of how to grow and how to live and some of the doctrinal questions he was going to answer. See, for Paul, it was always wanting to draw in um, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, our salvation, before he ever wanted to get to how we should live, the things that maybe we should grow in, the things we should do. Because he always wanted and wants us to grow and be motivated by grace, by what Christ has done for us. He doesn't want us just to get into a kind of legalistic thing, do this, do that, this is what you should do, this is what. He wants us to be motivated by grace. He wanted them to, to be motivated by the gospel and see what, what Christ has done for them on their behalf. And this letter, as we're going to look at now, has, has kind of a clearly defined structure. He opens with a prayer of thanksgiving for them. He looks back to his time with them, celebrating how they were saved. He then prays for their growth. And he transitions then to address how they should live before God and their society and deals with some of their questions, questions resulting from believers who have died. And then he concludes with a final prayer. So let's look briefly this morning into, a little deeper into these, these five parts of this encouraging letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, he starts with this prayer, thanking God, thanking God for, for them all. And in verse 3, he actually defines this, this what he thanks him for. If we, we read it, give, we give thanks to, to God always for all of you, all of you, everybody in the church, constantly remembering, mentioning you in our prayers. Remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on later in, in, in verse 9, he says, when he talks about remembering their work of faith, in verse 9 he explains that that work of faith that he's referring to is their turning to God from idols. They were living in a city where there were lots of idols. And they're turning from those idols to God. That's what he's referring to 
And he mentions that in verse 9. And then when he's talking about their thank, thanking them for their labor of love, again in verse 9, he says that, that, that labor of love to serve the living and true God. That's what he was thanking them for. And then the final thing he thanks them for in this section is their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what was that hope? Again, if you look in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. That was the hope that these people were living in. And so he's grateful for that. He's grateful for these things that, he's, that Timothy has reported back to him about what was taking place in the church. And then the second section, that was the opening prayer of thanksgiving. From verse four, 6, of, uh, he, he says this. Let's read, read what it says in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. In fact, he goes on to say that this young church, their faith was so strong, even with affliction, even with persecution. And he goes on from verse 6 to, to outline this, that they have become an example. Even though a young church, they have become an example in Archaea and Macedonia. This church was known for its faith. This church was known for its love, this, for one another. This church was, was known for uh, their, their living in the expectancy of Jesus' return, living a life with that expectancy. And it wasn't just, I don't believe, that they were known about their good works. It wasn't just their good works. They were known for their good works. But it was their faith, their love, <coughs> their joy. And as, as, as a church today, we want to be known for good works. That's good. But people outside the church do good works, not just Christians. But we want to be a church that's known for faith, a faith and trust in God, a love for Jesus, and a joy that comes from our salvation. Because in the circumstances of life, with the challenges that we face, just as the Thessalonian church faced, it's our faith and our trust in a sovereign God that needs to be the hallmark of our lives. That although we do works, yes, let's do that. Let's never. But it's these elements that truly mark us out as the church of Christ. But in saying this, as Paul is talking about these things that he's recognizing in the church, he was only too aware that neither he nor the Thessalonian church deserves the credit for the example that they've become in the, in the region. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, speaking of them receiving the word, For this, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. We can never claim any credit for what we received. We've never earned what we receive. The growth that we see in one another's lives and we see in, a church, in our church, we can never claim. It's not the pastors, ultimately. 
It's not us because we've responded to the word. It's ultimately Jesus. It's we, when we listen to the word of God on a Sunday, you can listen to it as some man standing here preaching, but we need to receive it as the word of God. And for us who, who te- teach and preach, we're trying to do our best in explaining the word of God. But it's not us that we need to receive. It's the word of God. And Paul recognized it. And so as we grow and develop, develop as a church, and grow in our own lives, it's only God that deserves the credit. He's the one who should get all the praise and all the glory. And as I was thinking about this, it's just a reminder for us as we, as we, our role is to sow seed, to preach. I mean, all of us, not the pastors, all of us to sow, preach, to teach, to share, to proclaim God's word. That's our job, to sow. To sow to one another, not just outside the church, but also outside the church. But it's only God. It's only God that can actually work in the person's life. And so we need to recognize all the time that the glory always goes to God. The praise is all to him. We must be, like Paul, faithful to our commission to to preach to God, but it's, it's, it's God's gift of faith that regenerates the heart and brings about salvation and brings about growth in our daily lives as we walk with Jesus. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul goes on to remind them and recalls them of his time of ministry with them. Again, as you spend over this month, it's not a, it's not a big book to go through this week, this month. I mean, some of you are probably still finishing off Exodus, but it's, it's, it's not a big book to go through. So you've got plenty of time. Go over and over and over. Just, just read it as I've been reading it. Several times, several times, just things pop out and, and you start to see things. Um, so, so, so look at, look at his time of ministry. He, he goes back and what he's saying there. We haven't got time to go into all this today. But Paul had, as I said earlier, he'd been charged with that he was peddling this message and working among them for money. And Paul is, is, is concerned about this and he wants to... In, in chapter 2 or 3, he wants to dispute these allegations. And he de- does so by recalling his own ministry among them. And he reminds the Thessalonians how he had shown himself to be a genuine servant of God who was concerned about their good and not his own. And I just want to briefly touch on, in these two chapters, uh, Paul, we can see, identifies at least, at least... There's probably more. I just picked out seven. I'm not going to go through them all in detail. It's all right. Seven signs of genuine gospel ministry. And as I just go through these this morning, I would encourage you over the month to spend time looking at it, looking at these, these evidences of godly ministry. Because this godly ministry that we're talking about is not just for pastors, it's for all of us. We're all ministers of the new covenant. And so what we see in Paul is a great example for us. So spend time looking and, and seeing how these, these, these uh, play out in chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
But I'm just going to briefly mention what the seven are. I haven't got time to go through. We will be here uh, until tea time. Self-sacrifice. Number one, self-sacrifice. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul shows he is willing to suffer. In chapter 2, verses 7 8, we see a motherly love. A motherly love. Paul was not harsh, he says. He was, he was gentle. He was dis- delighted to share and take. You see that in mothers, don't you? They're gentle. They're not harsh. Your mothers are never harsh, are you? Never. They're gentle. Always, but wanted to share. Always wanted not to take. And then he talks about fa- fatherly. Fatherly integrity and encouragement. Uh, 2 verses 10 to 12, fatherly counsel. And then his desire, he had this desire for fellowship. You know, ch- chapter 2 verse 8, I love it. He, t- he talks about sharing, not just the word, but sharing our very selves. You know, sometimes, you know, when you, you, you ever had an experience where somebody's just sharing the word and you think, well, I'd like a bit of you as well. I'd like, I'd like to, you know, you feel it and you're, you're concerned for me. That's, that was Paul. And that was his great desire. There are, other, there are other scriptures that we haven't got time this morning. Have a look at these, these, these ministry traits, as it were. Joy. Ministry. His joy, it says in, in chapter 3, verse 7, it was a joy in the people. His joy was in the people. It was in Christ, but he had great joy in seeing the people grow and see them change. Of following Jesus. And then prayer. Throughout the letter, Paul constantly commits them to God in prayer. And he refers to him praying for them. And then finally, hope. 2 verse 19. For Paul, his hope was in these believers. For they were his glory and joy. And then going on to the third part of the letter. Having looked back and he... he he concludes this part with praying for their future, the end of chapter 3. And it's a prayer for growth and endurance. And although Paul was encouraged by the church and their example, and even though he saw God's hand at work among them, he is not a fatalist who simply assumes what will be, will be. And that's a lesson for us all to take on board. However strong our faith, we mustn't become fatalists in this. We need to grow. We need to ask for God's grace to grow. To grow, and we need to pray for that, pray for one another in that, and pray for for ourselves in that. He was encouraged by the church, but he didn't just kind of think, "Oh well, let's leave it there." Paul here prays for an increase in their faith, in their love for one another, and their growth in holiness. Although he's seen that, he's praying for more. But in addition to praying for an increase in love and holiness, that we live and grow in the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. So now we come to the fourth part. Chapter 4 starts at chapter 4 and, and, um, and chapter 5. And Paul turns his attention, having reminded of all those, those truths and reminded them and encouraged them in what he sees, he now turns his attention to their future. And he starts by saying that just as you're walking to please God, now do so more and more. And that's a word to us, all of us, isn't it? Now, as we're walking, now do so more and more. You know, we, we rarely stand still in life. We either move forward or we go backward. And although Paul was grateful for Timothy's report, he was aware 
that for all believers, there's always room for growth. And so he's concerned that they just, they just didn't settle in the place they were at. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul mentions eight qualities that should typify the lives of Christians. Again, I encourage you to read these verses. I'm just going to give you the headlines. Firstly, to live in order to please God. Chapter 4, verse 1, as a Christian, we may have to do things that are unpopular, but Paul is saying, do live in order to please God. Who are we trying to please? Those people around us? Or as somebody once said, the audience of one. The audience is one, being God. Live in a sexually holy life. You see, these folks were living in a, in a, in a really sexually promiscuous uh, city. And Paul knew that, that, that that's a problem. And, and, and read what he says. We haven't time this morning. I keep saying that. But you, you need to really spend some time in these things, looking at why he's saying this. But, you know, we're living in an age today that is sexually promiscuous. May, may not just, it, may not be in the, it wouldn't be in the same way as it was then. It may be in our, in our age more to do with what's going on in the internet as well as what's going on uh, physically in our lives, as it were. But he was addressing them. He said, this, a, a sexually holy life, this is a trait of a Christian. Live a life of brotherly love. 4 verse 9 to 10, brotherly love to all the believers in other churches. He's not just talking about the, their church, to all believers, all Christians. Live a respectable life. Chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, living a life that commends the gospel. And then fifthly, live a life in the hope of Christ's return. Verse, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 um, to, to 15, I'd just like us to, to read. Paul comes now to this point of a problem that existed in the church, a situation that existed. And he says in verse 13, but, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You know, the second coming of Jesus, I was thinking about this, is probably something we don't concentrate on that much. It was interesting in the songs this morning, the hymns or songs we were singing this morning, there was reference to Jesus' return. And I, when, I was a, when I was a young Christian, it was a subject that was preached about a lot. So much so that, you know, as a, as a, as a young man engaged to June to be married, I, I, I thought, Lord, you're going to return, but please come after we're married. As if that was going to be so important. We lived in that expectancy. In fact, the Pentecostals, if those of you know, they, they were called the second comers. They were defined by that term. And yet, do we live today? Do I live today in the light of that? I can't think, I think I live in the light of I'm going there rather than he's coming here before I go. But that's another matter. <laughs> but living in the light of, of Jesus returning. Paul's hope in the second coming of Christ should be the hope of all Christians. 
And throughout this letter, if you go through it, you'll see Paul referencing it in various ways, Christ's return. But there was a question that had arisen in the church, and Paul wanted to, in this letter, answer that question. Because people had died. You see, when, when they were taught in the early church about Jesus returning, they thought it was, it was going to happen before they died. They didn't know it was going to happen at least 2,000 years later. We know that because he still hasn't returned. So it's going to be at least 2,000 years. They didn't think that. And now they had a problem that people had died and Jesus hadn't returned. And so they had this question, what would happen? They, they were concerned, would he or she be lost forever? Paul, when he was with them, has clearly taught them about Jesus returning, but apparently had not addressed the issue of what happens to those who die before he returns. And now in this letter, he was going to do that. And these words that I've just read are, are familiar words that, that are read at, at, at funerals. If you've been to a funeral, Christian funeral, you're sure you've probably heard these words read out. And this is our great hope. And this should encourage us. But it should not only encourage us, but help us prepare for that day. It will come. We may go before, or he may come before we die. But that day will come. You know, we often say we live, we live in the light of two days, or we should live in the light of two days. Today because we're not promised tomorrow, and that day when Jesus returns. Two days that are key for us in our lives. We're not promised tomorrow, but we are promised that Jesus will return. And then we see at Paul, at Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3, Paul prays that God would establish your hearts blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He wanted to encourage them that this, this understanding that Jesus was going to return should affect the way we live. It should not only encourage us, but help us to prepare, prepare for that day. Further on in, 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 in chapter 4 and, in, uh, and through to uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, he kind of outlines more and uh, to encourage us and prepare us, telling us we, don't really, we won't know that day, we won't know that time exactly. I wanted to explain a little bit more in the uh, verses following about the second coming in the end times. We know he's coming. And the scriptures encourage us to live every day in the knowledge that it may occur at any moment. So we should live as those who are ready. And sixthly, coming back to <coughs> looking at these, these qualities of a, uh, uh, that should typify a Christian life, according to Paul, six, live an encouraging life. Strengthen, building up. If you look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, to strengthen, to build up, living in peace. And for me, the challenge of being patient, being patient, Living in peace. These are some of the things that should typify our lives. Seven, chapter five, verses 16 to 18, are living a God-centered life. Living a life that God is at the center. He's at the center of our lives, our homes, our jobs, our money, 
a leisure. God is not just an add-on, something to be added on to all the other things that we do, the stuff of life. Number eight, live a discerning life. Five, verses 19, 22. We should be discerning about, he talks about prophecy and the gifts and discerning about what is good and what is evil. And what will help us do that is the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit as we seek God's help in that. And then in chapter 5, verse 23, Paul concludes with a final prayer. Now Paul starts this letter and he finishes this letter with grace. Pray for grace. Grace be with you. All of Paul's letters are like that. Because for Paul, God's grace is the very foundation of the gospel and it underpins all of his letters. Now in conclusion, I want to read 23 and 24. Although written to the Thessalonians, I want to read it for us this morning as a prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.